Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me, first of all, in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, book of Psalms chapter 8. We'll read Psalm 8 together. This afternoon we'll be considering the the truth that the eternal Son of God took upon human flesh. We'll be seeing that from Lord's Day 14. And as we prepare for that, first of all, we'll read from Psalm 8. For the director of music according to Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's now turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll read John 1, verse 1 to 14. Perhaps you noticed as we read Psalm 8 that it was reflecting creation language. And we're also going to see that in the first few verses of John. Just as Genesis starts within the beginning, so does John. Let's read John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children of God born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And let's also turn to the book of Hebrews book of Hebrews, we'll read some verses from chapter 2. We'll 
the book of Hebrews is written to a group of dis- discouraged Christians, Christians who have begun to follow Christ but are also confronted by living and the challenges of, of doing so. They've been facing persecution and so they need some encouragement. And so the writer of the Hebrews, in order to encourage these Christians, he wants to encourage them by looking to Christ. First of all, I want to actually read the first four verses of chapter 1. Um, let's read, first of all, the first four verses of Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then in the rest of the chapter 1, the author of Hebrews uses various quotes from the Old Testament to show that Jesus Christ is, in fact, far greater than angels. And then let's read now chapter 2, verse 5 to 18. We continue reading about uh, Jesus' superiority over the angels. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Well, since the children have shared in flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So far, God's word. Let's now turn to Lord's Day 14, which is a a summary of God's word about the truth of the incarnation. And let's read that together. You can find that on page 878. 
Lord's Day 14, what does it mean that he, Jesus, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, J.R. Packer in his book, Knowing God, perhaps some of you have read this book. In this book, he, he says that our topic this afternoon is the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. The supreme mystery of the gospel, he says, lies not in the atonement nor the resurrection, but in the message of the incarnation. The incarnation, that is, that, that means that God has taken on human flesh. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth. He says, as 1 Timothy 3.16 says, the mystery of godliness is great. God was manifested in the flesh. And this is the mystery that we confess in Lord's Day 14. It's the mystery that we confess every Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ. We can't understand the mechanics of this mystery. We don't know all the ins and outs of how it works. But when we see what God has revealed in his word about this truth, our response is to simply bow our heads in worship and adore him. Rather than scratching our heads in confusion, we are to bow our heads in worship. And so as we examine this truth this afternoon, may God move all of our hearts to adore him, to adore him for his great love in sending his son to take on human flesh. And so we'll see this afternoon... The Gospel of Lord's Day 14, the Word became flesh. Come behold the wondrous mystery. First we will see who it was that became flesh. Then we'll see that he became flesh. And thirdly, we'll see why he became flesh. The Word became flesh. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Because as we examine God's Word on, on this incredible teaching this afternoon, it's good for us to start by considering first who it was that took upon himself this human nature. Because when we see that he was the glorious Son of God who became a man, when we see just how great the distance was between God and man, then we start to begin to grasp just how amazing this truth is. You see, if I loved dogs, if I loved dogs so much that I wanted to become a dog, wanted to join them and become one of them, that would be, that would be one thing. That would be quite something, wouldn't it? But on the other hand, if I loved ants so much that I wanted to become an ant, that would be quite another thing altogether. There's a totally different distance between man and dog and man and ant. Well, this afternoon, we're going to see that the difference between God and man is an even bigger distance still. We need to understand this, this distance between God and us, the distance that the Son of God crossed when he took on humanity 
And to grasp the magnitude of this miracle then, we need to understand who the Son of God is before He became a man, before He took on human flesh. Lord's Day 14 begins, I believe that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God. So this is where we start, that Christ, before He became a man, was eternal. He always was. There never was a time when He was not. In the beginning was the Word, John 1.1. He was never created, but in fact He is the agent of creation. God created all things through Him. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made, John 1.3. Hebrews 1 also says that God made the worlds through Him. The Son of God was, was never created like any of us, but He is the Creator. He has always existed. He is eternal. And further, He is true God, the Son of God, as the Catechism says. Now, in the time when, when the Bible was written, this, this term, Son of God, had a lot of different meanings. For the Jews, this term, Son of God, might have referred to angels. Or for the Greeks, when they heard this term, Son of God, they would have thought of demigods, the offspring of gods who had married humans, that is, actually half a god, half a human. And for them, it was insulting. It was an insulting term, Son of God, that is, not really a true, a true God. And so when John uses this, this word, son of God, he, needs, he, he shows it needs to be understood correctly as one who is divine, that he is true God. And in order to convey this truth, John calls him the Word. John 1, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when the Jews read this text, they understood that the word refers to God's creative power by which he made the world. Remember Genesis 1, God spoke, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament. God speaks and is done. God's word refers to his creative power. The word was with God. That is, just as God was always eternal, the word was eternal. They lived in relationship together with each other. And the Word was God. That is, He Himself was divine. He is God in Himself. He has a self-sustaining existence. And so, as true and eternal God, He also has the glory of God. Hebrews 1 says that the Son is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of His person. The brightness of God's glory. Well, how glorious is God? God's glory. We read about this in many places in the Old Testament. His glory was so bright that no one could ever see his face because otherwise they would die. Think of the blinding glory of God at Mount Sinai, the glory which made Moses' face shine so that the people couldn't even even see his face, which was only a reflection of God's glory. Or think of the glory of God, which meant that the high priest could only enter this most holy place of the temple, of tabernacle, only one time per year. Or think of the glory of God that filled the temple just after Solomon built the temple. 2 Chronicles 5 says that the priests, they couldn't stand to minister because of the cloud because the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That's how glorious God is. And one more example, think of the glory of the Lord in Isaiah's vision. Just as Isaiah is commissioned to be a prophet in Isaiah 6, 
Then Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the angels, the angel with six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet and two to fly. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And remember Isaiah's reaction to this magnificent display of God's glory. He was terrified and he said, woe is me for I'm done, undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Well, this is the glory of God. And when we confess that the Son is the brightness of God's glory, this is the glory that the Son shares with the Father. Well, God's glory is also seen in creation. We read from Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You who have set your glory above the heavens. When David was writing this psalm, he marvels at the glory of God in creation. As he watches his sheep on the mountainous landscapes, as he watches the magnificent sunsets, the glorious sunsets, he sees God's glory displayed, his name written in all of creation. You know, just as an artist finishes her painting and then she signs her name in the bottom corner, and yet at the same time, you can see the artist's signature throughout the work in, in the style of, of her painting. In the same way, we can see that God's signature is seen throughout all of creation because all of creation declares his glory. Well, this afternoon, we confess that Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory, his blinding glory that no one could look upon, his glory displayed in all of creation. This is the glory he had with the Father before time began. He is true and eternal God. Well, compared to God and his glory, as human beings, we are tiny. David in Psalm 8, he says, When I consider the heavens, the moon, the work of your stars, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? David looks up at the vastness of the night sky. It's always an impressive sight, isn't it? As you look up on a, on a cloudless sky and, and you see just the magnificent display of stars and you see more stars and more stars. And yet David looks even further behind these stars and he sees the one who has made them. He sees how much bigger than the stars God is. Because just as an artist might use his fingers to smear a canvas to apply the finishing touches to a beautiful painting. So God, as the divine artist, he has, he has made the heavens with the work of his fingers. And so David is left in, on, in wonder and in awe at the immensity of God's creative power, at the might of his fingers. And it's in response to this meditation, in thinking about the surpassing glory of God to just how big he is, that David looks down to man at how small he is, at how small we are, and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of God, the son of man that you remember him? Because when we compare ourselves with, with God the creator, we creatures are very little, aren't we? And then what wonder what awe that God takes thought for us. For, for we who are fragile and, and weak creatures compared to the immeasurable majesty of our maker. But the gap between God and man 
It's even bigger than a gap just between him as creator and us as creatures. Because boys and girls, you remember that after God made the world in the Garden of Eden, when he made Adam and Eve, they, they walked together, God and man together, walking and talking in the garden in the cool of the day, creator and creature living in communion. But now the gap between us and God is also a gap between a holy God and unholy people. This gap which forced Adam and Eve out of the garden, they could no longer be with God because sin separated us from God. And that's why Isaiah, when he saw the beautiful vision of of God's glory, that he said, Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He knew his sin, and so he couldn't bear to see God's glory. Well, this is the gap between God and us, between creator and creature, between holy God and unholy people. And brothers and sisters, the gospel of the incarnation is that God's very own Son, the brightness of His glory, true and eternal God, through whom all things were created, He took on human nature. He became a man. The creator took on the flesh of a creature. The one who made time entered into time. The Holy One came to live among unholy people. The Son of God has covered the greatest distance to become one of us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. It is a wondrous mystery, isn't it? Well, let's see in the the second part of this message that the Son of God became flesh. We've seen who He was, the brightness of, of God's glory. Let's see now the human nature that he takes on. The Catechism says that he took upon himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the John 1.14, it says literally that the Word tented among us. He pitched his tent among us. Well, boys and girls, perhaps you can think of a time in, in the Old Testament where there was lots of tents when the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt and they were all living in tents, but there was one special tent. I wonder if you can remember that special tent. It was called the tabernacle. And this is the tent where God lived. This was the special way that the people of Israel could live with their holy God. And that was in the Old Testament. But now we see that the Son of God He became flesh and he was the tent. Just like the tabernacle was the bridge between God and man, now Jesus was the bridge to cross that otherwise uncrossable chasm between man and God. The word became flesh. He shared in our flesh and blood. As it says in Hebrews 2.14, Jesus got hungry just as we get hungry. The Catechism says that he was like his brothers in every way and yet without sin. So he worked in the carpenter's shop with his brothers. He cut wood, he made furniture. He sweated when it got hot. He had friends that he spent time with. He sailed the Sea of Galilee. He walked on the beach and felt the sand between his toes. Jesus laughed and cried. He took upon himself true human nature. 
And in doing so, he humbled himself. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He gave up his divine glory and honor in order to become man. As he prayed in John 17, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus had given up his glory in order to become a man. Well, how is this possible? Because wasn't he still 100% God while he was a man? Yes, the Catechism says he was, he is and remains true and eternal God. So when Jesus was on earth, he remained true God, but he became God plus man. There was never any subtraction from his divinity, only the addition of humanity. He always remained true God, even as he took on human flesh. And because he was true God, he had divine knowledge. He knew that Lazarus was dead even before he saw him. He knew that when Peter went fishing, the first fish he caught would have a coin in his mouth. He knew the history of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And as well as having divine knowledge, he had divine power to, to do miracles, even to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is and remains true and eternal God. And yet, because he also had this addition of human nature, there were some things he did not know. For example, he didn't know the timing of his second coming. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. Mark 13. So the Athanasian Creed summarizes it when he says that the Son of God is equal to, the, to his Father in respect of his divinity, less than the Father in respect of his humanity. Jesus submitted to his Father's will, and it was his Father's will that he should have a somewhat limited knowledge while he walked on earth. He took on true human nature, thus submitting to his Father's will. Brothers and sisters, this is a miracle, and it's a mystery. Fullness of God in helpless babe. No wonder J.I. Packer said that this is the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. But this is also a confession that we need to embrace. John Calvin said that those who take away from Christ either his divinity or his humanity, they diminish his majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. Because he was true God, that shows his majesty and his glory. And yet he was at the same time true man. That shows his goodness. And further, this was the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember what the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. So the Holy Spirit caused Mary to be, become pregnant. And this is why Jesus could be born with no sin. The distance between God and man was so great. The distance between creator and creature, holy God and unholy people. And yet God sent his son to be one of us, to live in this mess of human life to have a body and soul and emotions and thoughts and, and feelings and all the things we have as humankind. He knows what it's like. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived in the brokenness and the mess of life. He knows what it's like he, the eternal Son of God, the agent of creation, he understands humanity 
because he is a man. And the fact that we cannot understand it doesn't take away from the grandeur of this miracle. God has tented with mankind. The mechanics of this are beyond us, but our response is to adore him. Come, let us adore him. The word has become flesh. And in the third part of this message, we'll consider why. Why the Son of God took on human flesh. Why would he do it? Why would the glorious creator become a creature? Why would the holy God come to live with unholy man? Well, answer 36 says it this way, He is our mediator. And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. This is the reason that he has solidarity with us, why he shares in our flesh and blood, not only to be empathetic, not only just to understand what it's like to be human, but even more, even better, to take upon our sin to redeem us so that his perfect sinless life can be credited to us, to be our mediator, to bridge that chasm between us and God. And he does this, he does this out of love for us. Martin Luther once said, all this your love for us has done. The focus of the catechism here is on, on Jesus' active obedience, that he was a man without sin. And this extends even to his birth. All of us here are, are born in sin, but Jesus was born sinless. And so as the second Adam, he represents all who believe in him. And so his perfect sinless life, his perfect sinless birth is credited to us even though I was conceived and born in sin, he was without sin from his conception, and this perfect record is given to you and me. And so because I'm in Christ, his sinless conception is given to me. It's mine. As the Catechism says, it's as if I had never had or committed any sin. As if I was born without sin. This is the wonderful truth of the incarnation. He covers our sin right from the very start, right from our conception, and he covers our sin throughout our entire life. His entire life, obedient. And this is credited to you and me as this is the way we have lived our life as well. It doesn't matter how long I live. If I never see the light of day, but I'm still conceived in sin, or if I live to be a hundred and, and do lots of bad things as, as well as being conceived in sin, yet his innocence and, and perfect holiness, it covers it all. God sees me as holy. Birth, life, death. Holy, that's how God sees you. Brothers and sisters, do you see why you need to embrace this confession in faith? When we believe in him, his sinless life is the firm foundation we have before the Father. His sinless conception and birth only possible because he was true God. This is the firm foundation of our faith, the firm foundation we have when we stand before the Father. He is our mediator. And so the uncrossable chasm between us and God is bridged. We can again have fellowship with God. The Athanasian Creed says that it's necessary to eternal salvation that anyone who desires to be saved must believe in this truth, the gospel of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is true God and true man, 
So brothers, sisters, do you believe this truth, this glorious truth? It's a mystery, but it's a wondrous mystery, isn't it? Because God has given us a way to himself. John 1.12, to all who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your salvation, the true Son of God, the Father brings you into his family. Jesus himself becomes your brother. Hebrews 2, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The Almighty God has condescended to us. He has come down to us in His Son that we might live eternally with Him. When you believe in Christ, sorry, come behold this wondrous mystery. Believe this wondrous mystery. And how do we respond but to to live our lives of deep gratitude to Him, our loving Savior, who came down from heaven, who took on our flesh and blood. Brothers and sisters, this gospel of the incarnation, it may be the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. We won't understand the mechanics of it. But come, let us adore him. Let us adore his great and awesome love. The word has become flesh and we will live with him forever. You who were rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. You who are love beyond all praising, Savior and King, we worship you. Amen. Let's pray in response to hearing God's word. O glorious King, we adore you. We adore you, Father, because you sent your Son into this world. We adore you, eternal Son, because you took upon yourself our human flesh. And we adore you, Holy Spirit, because you are the one who has worked this wondrous miracle through your Holy Spirit. Father, may this truth comfort us. May we embrace this truth, especially as we celebrate this beautiful season of the year. And may we all be refreshed as we hear this gospel again As we remember the birth of our Savior, may we be refreshed also as we celebrate with family, with friends, with our church community. We pray that you would bless us as we go from here. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.